I don't know about you, but I am excited to start the book of Ruth. After working our way through Judges a long time, and then even taking a break, and then coming back to Judges and how the book of Judges ended, I'm excited to get to something new. <laughs> something new that isn't weighing on as far as all the immorality, all the sin, to get some relief. And we get that with the book of Ruth. Sometimes when we start a new book, we might look at some of the background information, the time when it was written, the time it was taking place before we begin. For Ruth, we're going to kind of pick those things up as we go. Pull and draw them out of the text itself to see how we get this context and know when it's being written, what's taking place, when it's taking place. And so we're going to just dive right in to Ruth chapter 1. We read the first few verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Already starting with the first verse, now we're going to get some of that timing. In the days when the judges ruled. Okay, so this account that we're looking at, Ruth, took place during that period that we just looked at in Judges. When did it take place? Well, there was a famine in the land. Try to really recall and think back through all those chapters of Judges, when was there a famine? Can you remember? That's okay if the answer is no, because there wasn't mentioned. There's no specific famine mentioned in Judges. Now, we know that many enemy nations were coming and oppressing, destroying crops, plundering. And so really, it could have taken place at any amount of time here. But we know, so this period of 350 years, all right, this account of this man from Bethlehem. As it's a refresher now to be in Ruth and not Judges, one of the things we do want to do is see that they are contrasting each other to compare them. And so as we see that it's taking place during that period, here is now that shining light and that darkness we saw in Judges, that even during this time, what do we see here? And here we see a very striking contrast already. A man from Bethlehem in Judah. Can you remember back the last few chapters of Judges? As we had that Levite, who with his concubine, that ended up spilling over to a huge mess. Where was that... Levite, where did he go? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. He was living out in nearby Bethlehem, and that's where he goes. And so now here we have a different account of a man from Bethlehem. A man from Bethlehem, and it's very different. Together with his wife, not his concubine, his wife, 
and two sons went to live for a while in the country of Moab. We'll talk more about Moab in just a bit. There's a significance, especially in the book of Ruth, really in all of Scripture when it comes to names. Not that every name has meaning that God is revealing behind it, but it's worth our time to pay close attention to the names. And the name of this man, it's mentioned. I mean, that's enough significance for us to be looking at here. Elimelech. Elimelech. His name means my God is king. Do you remember how Judges ended? The book of Judges? And in those days, Israel had no king. And now, to begin the book of Ruth, in the days of the Judges, here's a man from Bethlehem, very different than the, from Bethlehem before. His name is Elimelech. My God is king. And so for all the darkness of the Judges, you do still see little lights. That during this period, there were still people who did believe in God. Who were not worshipping the idols. Who did still uphold God as king in their hearts. And Elimelech is one of them. Let's mention maybe the meanings of his family's names. His wife's name is Naomi, meaning pleasant or gracious. Names of his two sons. Now here's a bit of a contrast. Malan means weakly. Kilian means pining. Maybe not so favorable of meanings for their names. They went to Moab and lived there. Moab is the nation that we saw in Judges, King Eglon. If you remember Ehud, that left-handed judge with the dagger, King Eglon was a large man, the dagger sunk in. Eglon was king of Moab. So they had oppressed the Israelites too. Moab was in country in the region to the southeast of Israel, the promised land. So if you can kind of have your bearings there, you've got the Sea of Galilee on the eastern boundary, then the Jordan River flows through, the Dead Sea down the bottom, kind of marking down the south for the east side. Moab's off to the east of that, and a little south. Not really that far. The region of Israel is not a very big place. Our state is much larger than that. Keep that in mind. All right, they go to Moab because there's a famine. There is no food and so Elimelech is needing to provide for his family. It's, we see a lot of times actually in Scripture that God's people have to move for famine and go different places. Uh, maybe the most notable one is Jacob bringing his whole family down to Egypt because of famine. They go to Moab and they're going to live there. Verse 3, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth, and they had lived there about ten years. Both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. 
how quickly things unravel, how quickly things fall apart. There was a famine, but that was the least of their issues. They go to get food, and with every intent, they're coming back once the famine ends, except most of them won't. One of the striking things throughout the book of Ruth is you look at marriages and the ideal that God sets up as for marriage or what is will it is one man, one woman for life. Okay, now when he set that up in the Garden of Eden, this should have been for forever. Sin came and destroyed that, breaking it with death. And we just see how in so many ways how marriage is dissolved, how it's through death here, it's separated, how marriage, even marriage is mentioned, how it just wasn't the way it was supposed to be. This is not how it's supposed to be. Here we have Elimelech dying. That's not how it's supposed to be. All right, now Naomi's a widow. But on top of that, you have Malin and Killian, her sons also dying. Not how it's supposed to be. They had married Moabite women. What do you think about that? Marrying Moabite women. They moved over to Moab, probably not with the intent that they're going to go find wives, but they did. And maybe here is again where we see things aren't necessarily how it was all supposed to be with marriage. Now, remember, God had made a command not to marry Canaanite women. Moabites are not Canaanites. That's important for us to remember. Don't misunderstand this as, all right, they went off and married going against God's will here. The Moabites, who are they? Well, here is where we see an account of marriage did not happen, this was not happening how God intended, but yet how God still blesses here through all this. The Moabites come from the family of Moab. Moab was the son of Lot's daughter. Remember Abraham's nephew, Lot, Genesis 19. Now, okay, the son of Lot's daughter, get to remember a bit now how Lot's family worked. That Lot and his family were living in Sodom and Gomorrah. And when God said he was going to destroy it, he sent angels down to rescue Lot and his family. They dragged them out of the city. And Lot's wife turns back, turns into a pillar of salt. So Lot and his daughters are the ones who escape, but they don't have any husbands. And so what happens? The son of Lot's daughter is also Lot's son. And so you have clearly here, okay, this is not at all what God wanted or intended with marriage, that... You have a case of incest, and Moab comes out. Moab is one of the children and the Moabite people. And so 
connected to Abraham's family, connected to the nation of Israel, distant relatives. Distant relatives. What a sad situation now we're at. I thought we were going to be refreshed by the book of Ruth. And already at, by verse 5, we are mourning the loss of three husbands. Well, let's continue on. Let's continue on. Verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Maybe just even to mention, we're going back to the timing that's taken place. They lived there about 10 years in Moab. So before this happens that the Lord is now coming. And you see what kind of a gracious words mean. The Lord come to the aid of his people. Here we see God's love of rescue. Ten years and we have three widows now. Uh, it probably doesn't seem very likely that that Ruth and Orpah had married Malin and Killian a very long time, the fact that there were no children. But now, Naomi as a widow, what is there to gain by staying in Moab? What is there to gain? She doesn't have a husband to provide for her. So who is going to? She doesn't have sons to provide for her anymore either. Who is going to provide? Should she stay as a stranger in a strange land? Doesn't make sense. There's food now back in Israel. She does have relatives of some sort there. It makes no sense to stay in Moab. And so she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return Turn home from there with her two daughters-in-law. She set, left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now, we have to ask that question, though, too. Okay, Naomi, nothing to gain from staying in Moab. In fact, it's only the reminders of all the loss she had had. What do the daughters-in-law have to gain by going with Naomi? They don't have husbands now either. And they're not actually Israelites. They're Moabites. What do they have to gain now from leaving their homeland to go to a strange land with no husband to provide for them? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. They go with her setting on the road. This was probably, you know, etiquette here that, you know, your mother-in-law is setting out on journey. You accompany your the initial part of the way, and then you kind of send her off. You send her off. And so that's what, you know, essentially Naomi recognizing this, she's going to say, all right, thank you for coming with me. It's time to go for you to go home. Verse 8, then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. 
May the Lord show your kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. Naomi tells them, all right, thank you for all you've done. May the Lord, the Lord, the covenant God, the God who promises love, the God who keeps love, may he show kindness to you for all the kindness you have shown. May the Lord bless you in his love with rest, with security, another husband, someone to take care of you. She says farewell, kisses them, and they say, we will go back with you to your people. Their response is, we'll follow you, mother-in-law. Question, please. Correct. Her husband and two sons died. Questions about where they bury them, how they would do that, correct? Okay, that's a good question. Nothing is mentioned here about burying the husbands. God does not, in this account, highlight that. Now, burial is actually an important thing that we're going to see even coming more in this chapter of Ruth, um, in that oftentimes we think about Jacob, and he wanted his bones buried back in Israel with his father's with Abraham, with Isaac, that they would be resting in one place. That's not to undermine the truth that obviously, you know, God can raise our bones, our dust from anywhere and reunite. He is just the all-powerful God. But to take it back to that promised place from God. And so it's possible that they could have, you know, kept these bones and remains and then taken them back with them. Nothing's mentioned here. What seems even more Striking then is when it talks about death later in this chapter and being buried. Who is talking about where they want to be buried? So we'll hold that thought and see and keep that, keep that in mind when we get to the word buried in this chapter. Other questions, we'll pause here. Questions or comments regarding where we're at here with Naomi and with Ruth and Orpah. The famine, good question. Good question. The question is whether this famine that begins the chapter, the famine that causes them to go to Moab, did God bring that about? Or was it just something natural? Was it a direct something directly sent by God for a purpose? Or did he simply allow it to happen? Scripture doesn't necessarily tell us one way or the other with that. does not give words to suggest something directly sent by God. Maybe an example for, a, for some earthly weather 
if you want, directly sent by God. Obviously, you can point to the fire and brimstone that falls upon Sodom and Gomorrah. You can look at with Jonah when it says that God sent, God appointed that scorching wind. Okay, we do see instances in Scripture where God specifically sends, he reveals that he had a direct purpose to do this. Now, God always is accomplishing his will and everything, and so maybe that's where we see with this one, that a famine comes. Was it directly sent for the sake of this account? I don't know that God doesn't say only for them, but God is governing overall, and so he does use it. He does use it so that Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons go to Moab, and then those two sons find wives in Moab. God is still governing overall. And, you know, you look at these things, and maybe you'd say, in the whole grand scheme of what's going on in Israel, especially as we think back on the book of Judges, what a little blip. What a little blip in all of the things taking place. How unnoticeable, actually, you think of it. Okay, one family moved. But yet, we see the hand of God behind all of it as we see what God does through this family. Other questions or comments? The two daughters-in-law response is, we will go back with you to your people. Verse 11, But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. We'd asked that question before, did it make any sense for these daughters-in-law, for Ruth and Orpah, to go with Naomi? And the answer really is not really from an earthly standpoint. And that's really what Naomi is bringing about here. And she makes reference here, am I going to have any more sons who could become your husband? What is she talking about? It's not something in our culture. But she is referring to the Leveret Law. The Leveret Law, Deuteronomy chapter 25, outlines that God had given a command to his people that in a family, if you have a son and that son dies, his wife, if he is to be married by his brother, if his brother doesn't have a wife. So it really is the... Scenario, you see the Sadducees pointing to Jesus. The silly scenario they pointed and said, if there are seven brothers and the first one with his wife, he dies with no, with no heir, and that happens all the way to the seventh, well, whose wife or whose wife is she in the resurrection of the dead? That's the silly, that's pointing at the Leverett Law. And what is God doing with this? He is protecting, essentially, the family lines for his people. 
upholding these promises, you know, these promises to you and your children, so that you have these brothers, and okay, first brother dies, no children. Second brother is to marry his brother's wife, and that the first child born in that marriage would be the heir to his brother, the brother who had died, would take that family name. And so it's that protection there. And so that's what Naomi's pointing to and saying that if she had had other sons, well, then they could have had husbands. But tragically, both her sons died. And now the practical implications of this is Naomi, who has who had adult children, who married. You can then imagine how old she is. Okay, as she says, if even if there, if I thought there was still hope, she is older. She is beyond the age of normally having children. Even if there were hope that okay, you know, maybe this is possible that if I find a husband tonight, tonight. And then God blessed with a son, not just even a child, but then a son that was be more than nine months later. But then you start playing out the math and the years, and you're be waiting. You'd be waiting, really, I mean, over a decade, well over a decade, two decades maybe, if that all happened. It doesn't make rational sense. Naomi is saying, I can't provide for you anymore. I can't take care. You came into our house, came into our family, but now there's nothing left for you here in this family. Questions? Asking about the time, how long did they live? Um, you see with Moses, he lived 120. Joshua lived maybe about, maybe close to 100. Lifespan probably wasn't too much different than it is today. Other questions? Okay, Naomi's laid out the facts. Uh, maybe before we go move on. Naomi's last words, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. What do you make of that? Please. She's human, she's gone through a lot of loss, she's hurt, she's frustrated, she's starting to doubt likely. Yes, all those things. I mean, look at what she's experienced. And then try to put yourself in her shoes. She didn't just lose her husband, which that alone, that alone, the loss. Even added more to it, the fact that, you know, losing your Husband meant losing your livelihood for the Israelites back in that day. On top of the emotional grieving, which once again is so much the way it is. 
with losing a spouse. But then it's also facing the facts of, well, how am I going to survive? Because then she lost her two children, both of her children. Can you fathom the emptiness in her life? I don't think we really can. We probably, in different perspectives, can kind of relate to one part or another. We can try to play it out, and maybe that's the best way. You know, we have those times where, you know, what happened to, what would, how would I feel if this happened to me? And then maybe start to feel some of those emotions and start to understand, never completely until you're actually experiencing it. But look at all that she's lost. We definitely should not be pointing the finger at Naomi and say, well, how could you say that? Of course not. Look at what she's experienced. And quite frankly, it may just also be, look, this is the reality. This is reality from every perspective. Yes, I've experienced tragedy. There is bitterness in my life. The Lord's hand has turned against me. That's probably the one that makes us squirm a little bit more in our seats because just, you know, from an objective standpoint as we look in, hearing, okay, the Lord's hand, well, you shouldn't say that, should you? You shouldn't say that. But yet, isn't that how she probably felt? And is that not how sometimes we feel? The Lord's hand has turned against me. That instead of the Lord coming and giving aid to his people, like he did Israel, relieving the famine, instead, he has turned against me. And now we know that the Lord is not against us. And so as we experience these losses, I think that's the reminder too, the emptiness that we have in our life to turn to the Lord, the covenant God, and see how really he is always for us. We shouldn't be quick to fault Naomi for not having this clear vision right now, clear perspective as to what's going on, because oftentimes, even in our lives, we don't really understand even how the Lord is moving it either. How we don't see all his inner workings to use this for our good. But remember, he is still the Lord. Naomi lays out the facts. She puts it before her daughters-in-law and says, I really don't see how you could see it any other way. This is kind of how it is. Let's live in reality here. Make some smart choices. You, daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, you are still of marrying age. Age that you can still find a husband and have heirs. Make a smart choice. Don't only be foolish to follow me. Verse 14. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah makes what seems to be the rational decision here, really. 
stay in your homeland with your home people, find a new husband, and the Lord, may he provide for you with this. Ruth clung to her. Verse 15, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Once again, Naomi urges Ruth, don't be stupid. Don't be stupid, Ruth. You're going to regret this. These are not your people that you're com- that I'm going to. They're my people, the Israelites. Stay with your people. And pointing to, Orpah, to her people and her gods. This might be another spot where we start to squirm a little bit with Naomi's words. Squirm because here we have someone who worshiped the true God telling someone else to go back to false gods. How should we understand this? How, how, what is God telling us with this? Thoughts? We can probably say that Naomi's mind was not focused primarily on evangelism at this point. That's probably not where any of our minds usually are in the midst of a loss of a loved one either. Or in her case, the midst of the loss of all her family. She is trying to, you know, really in some ways show love. Maybe it doesn't come out right. Maybe it's not really pointing what would be the most loving but you think about it, she says, she knows, they come with me, I can't help them. What's going to happen to them, I don't know. You can't expect an Israelite man now is going to, re- to marry them. And so just simply saying, you know, go back. And emphasizing here that contrast of the Israelites, they're not who you are. And really what we get then is this great setup It's almost like Naomi is putting it on a silver platter for Ruth here to confess her faith. Because before this religion hadn't been part of it, it really, you know, it seemed the fact that Naomi is telling me the Lord bless, the Lord bless, how their faith had rubbed off on Orpah and Ruth. Had rubbed off on them. And you see, you know, one of those blessings that can take place that... One spouse's faith can rub off on another's. And so once again, let's not be too quick to point the finger at Naomi. Hindsight's always 20-20. And you probably say, you know, maybe you shouldn't have encouraged her to go back to her gods. Maybe it still made sense to say, stay in your homeland but worship the true God. But as she urges it simply, you know, there's nothing for you here. And that's maybe to the blindness we can find in grief as well. It is striking that as Naomi certainly enduring a lot of loss, but how much she doesn't see what she does have. Sets it up on the silver platter then for Ruth. It's here is the critical moment 
Ruth can either pass or fail the test of faith. Verse 16, but Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Such powerful words from Ruth. A powerful response. You know, may, may God bless us with those, these kinds of words. When he gives us those situations to confess our faith, to declare our trust in him. And the extent that she goes, look at it. It's not simply, stop urging me to go, I'm going to go with you. Ruth says so much more than I'm taking a journey with you to Israel, back to Bethlehem. She says so much more. Your people will be my people. Directly in response to Naomi's word, referring to Orpah, back to her gods, back to her home. Ruth says no. Your people are my people. Those are not my people. And that says very clearly, those are not my gods. Your God will, your God, my God. And the commitment expressed here, too, that this is not a fleeting emotion, that this is to the end. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. I don't need my remains to be taken back to my home country. No, because that's not my home country anymore. Ruth is expressing, I am one of you now. That I am one of the people of God. There I will be buried. To the end, into death, and after death. May the Lord deal with me. First, there's that confession, using the Lord's name. She appeals to the Lord, the covenant God, if even death separates you and me. For all the ways we've seen that already, and we'll see more in Ruth, that marriage didn't follow the initial plan, the very simple and perfect plan, of one man, one woman forever, from the Garden of Eden, here we see how God has blessed it significantly in the midst of it not going right. That Ruth has become a believer. That happened because of her marriage, because of being in this family. That's how God brought her to faith. Is there any time or occasion that you have in the past maybe heard these words used?
At weddings, yeah, they're popular for weddings. They're popular for weddings. What do you think about that? For weddings, using these for weddings. Are they appropriate? Maybe the first question there. You see the love, absolutely. You see the love that's expressed, the commitment, and certainly that make that application okay to within a marriage, that love and commitment to your spouse. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. And maybe the deeper thing that should be emphasized all the more in this, your God will be my God. That may not even death separate us because of our connection in God. That's really the heart and core of Ruth's confession here. It's not so much, I'm going to follow you, my mother-in-law, Naomi. It's, I'm going to follow the Lord. It's perhaps maybe a little unique in that when you look at the context that it ends up getting used so much for weddings, that the context is, okay, both these women lost their husbands. Maybe a little unique. A little unique in the fact that it's words expressed to, from a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law, but you can see how the application there is still valid. It's still encouraging as to this sacrificial love that... Ruth is expressing here, maybe we see another contrast to the book of Judges, that as Ruth expresses being faithful, faithful to the Lord, faithful to her mother-in-law, sacrificial love, what did we see in Judges? Faithlessness and sacrificing everyone else for yourself. Selfishness. Ruth stands next to judges to show us the other side, to show us a lot of gospel. And it's a gospel, this love that, you know, that encourages us to reflect this love in our lives too, to reflect this in our relationships. And so maybe that's an important application point as we, in our relationships, whether it is, you know, with our children-in-law, our spouses, our own children. May these words ring true in our lives. May we seek to reflect this love, this relationship with them. I'll pause. Questions, comments? Please. Yeah, when they did marry in, they were kind of brought into the family of Israel. Um, now, that had to be that they wanted to come into it too, though. That those people married had to want to become in. Because obviously, if they were rejecting, then they were cut off. But yeah, that is one way. Perhaps, too, worth noting. Here we see how God, in the Old Testament, has brought in Gentiles to his family. That God doesn't just do that after Jesus. Here is one example that the gospel is for all people, that he, a Ruth, a Moabite, using through marriage, is sharing that good news, telling and revealing it himself, bringing to faith and bringing into that family. Other questions or comments?
let's continue on. Naomi knows it's no use anymore to try to tell Ruth to stop and go away, go back home. And so she gives in. Verse 19, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? So picture the sight. You have these two women. Now, remember, it's been 10 years. None of them know Ruth. I mean, she's a Moabite. It's only Naomi. And so it's been 10 years, and you see these two women coming, and one of them looks strangely familiar. And, okay, you know, you see that with people. They Even after so many years, yeah, you change appearances, but you, for the most part, you can kind of recognize them. Even when you aren't necessarily expecting, maybe it takes a little longer when you aren't anticipating seeing someone, but they do still look kind of the same, even after 10 years. And so you can imagine the whispers going, is that Naomi? Is it, could it really be Naomi? Who's that other woman with her? Where's her husband? What about her sons? And now put yourself in Naomi's shoes. The excitement that these other people, she's back. It's good to see her. But for Naomi, they're all talking about me. They're all talking about me. And I know what they're talking about. They're talking about where is my husband and children? And who is this other woman? What are you doing alone? And that sense of reliving those things. I mean, this isn't long after that, these losses, but now it's the reliving of, it's right back on the forefront of her heart and mind again. How it can very much be the case when someone is grieving or those things are minded to just want to be alone, to want to have some privacy, to just don't want the attention because there's so much in their mind what they're having attention on that it's, it's too much already. And as much as it's not ill intent by the woman at all, as much as you know, they are sincerely excited to see her again, it's been 10 years. But how difficult it is for Naomi now to go back home because when they left Bethlehem, the four of them, they planned to come back, the four of them. And so her words here now, don't call me Naomi. She told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. She is still experiencing much grief. She hasn't, this has not moved on just because now she has physically moved on from Moab. 
No, the loss is still weighing heavy on her heart. And, you know, as you evaluate what she says, sincere feelings aren't always necessarily true. Doesn't take away the hurt. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Is that true? Is that true for Naomi? She, she has her faith that she has the Lord. I mean, still she calls upon his name. She still has the Lord, even though she says the Lord has afflicted me, maybe even stronger, the Lord has testified against me in my life. But who is standing right next to her, as you said? She has a daughter-in-law. The blindness there of, I went away full, but I came back empty, never mind the other woman standing next to me. And here you perhaps see how those grieving emotions, first off, you say things that you don't necessarily mean, they aren't necessarily true. And perhaps then it's a reminder of the patience to have for people who are grieving. That how could they say such a thing? Well, okay, they're fixed on what they've lost right now. And it's hard to see what you have when you see what you've lost. But there is Ruth. Um, Mara, once again, means bitter. And so she wants her name to be changed. Uh, it may sound kind of silly, but remember what her name did mean. Pleasant, gracious, that's not how she feels. Not at all how she feels. She is still hurting very much. She has been emptied from what she thinks everything she had. Not quite true. Not quite true. She has been emptied, but the Lord has not testified against her. In fact, the Lord is the one who is going to fill her. And so as Naomi overlooks the fact that Ruth, her daughter-in-law, who, because of following the Lord, is following Naomi, as Naomi overlooks that gift, that blessing that she does have, the chapter closes with this verse. 22, so Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite. Her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. The Lord is filling and highlighting that filling highlighting that feeling in that there is Ruth, the daughter-in-law that he has brought, brought to faith and brought to Naomi. Here they are now back in Bethlehem, their homeland, filling in that way. And as the barley harvest was beginning, how did, how did this scenario, this account begin 10 years ago? There was famine. But God is filling, filling at the barley harvest. That puts the timing here as far as what's going to happen next is spring, March, or April. That's when the time of the barley harvest happened. It happened near the time of the Passover. The Passover, they would celebrate their 
the beginning of the harvest, the first fruits around that time. And so that's where we get, we're getting towards the first harvest, the harvest of barley. And the Lord will fill, the Lord will bless, because the Lord, the covenant God, is faithful. And he does that through Ruth and what he gives to both Ruth and Naomi. Any questions or comments? question is the uh, Moab God Molech did that also became you know it's a good you know I see what you're thinking too as far as those letters because it's really just kind of like one vowel a little shift I'm gonna have to go and look that one up I can't tell you for sure off the top of my head but I'll, that's an interesting thing too yeah so as far as you seeing Naomi saying go back to your gods well was their God did they call their gods king and you see that contrast of Israel in the time of judges in general had no king but Elimelech my God is king it's a good thing for us to dig into Please. Yeah, the comment there that husband and children back in that culture in that time are the most important thing. And maybe to emphasize again, most important regarding in one sense, and maybe we seem, this seems trivial, when you talk about the relationship, but important regarding your well-being and providing. That's how, they, that's how they were provided for. Naomi wasn't going to go get a job. She wasn't going to go work in her own field. That wasn't happening. But then on the higher end, the higher end, that, okay, this is family. As you see that God is giving promises to family, how he blesses with family, how he's lifted up, okay, Marriage as a special gift from him. Children as a special gift from him. Perhaps they appreciated that more in their society than our role as a whole does today. That how precious this was and then how much Naomi lost. In some ways it seems, you know, perhaps you equate and look at like Job and how much Job lost. And we're going to see that the Lord doesn't do the same as he did with Job in providing more children, but the Lord does provide in a unique way to Naomi, to Ruth, and really to all of us through it. Any other questions or comments? Let us close with prayer. Gracious Lord, in our times of loss, when we feel empty, please direct us to how you do fill us. Fill us with your love, your faithfulness. Increase our faith that we may boldly commit our desire to follow you because of what you have promised to us, that even death will not separate us from you. May we live this faith in our lives, in our families, in our relationships with others, to once again uplift you as Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.